You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting remotely for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Sydney Foreman. This is the WFHB Local News for Wednesday, July 15, 2020. I think if you were to walk and see it today and you didn't know that Black Lives Matter wasn't a part of that, then you wouldn't know any difference. Later in the program, Sydney Foreman and Cade Young take a look at the history of People's Park and how the black market was firebombed in 1968 by the Ku Klux Klan. That's coming up in today's feature report. Also coming up, WFHB News correspondent Katrine Bruner will discuss some challenges Indiana University staff and students may face coming back to school in about a month. But first, your local headlines. Up first, here are three things you need to know today. WFHB correspondent Jake Jacobson reports on three local headlines in today's news brief. 700 new cases of COVID-19 were reported in Indiana on Tuesday, according to the Indiana State Department of Health. The State Department of Health also attributed three new deaths to the virus. Locally, Monroe County saw 10 new confirmed cases yesterday, while Lawrence County saw 11. The percentage of Black people who have tested positive for COVID-19 in Monroe County is nearly double the percentage of Black people who live in Monroe County. According to the U.S. Census, Black people make up 3.7% of the population in Monroe County. Black residents have made up 6.5% of positive cases in the county, according to the ISDH. That's according to a comparison of the U.S. Census Bureau and Indiana State Department of Health data. The rate of positive cases among Black people in Monroe County is likely even higher than the reported 6.5%. That's because the state health department's racial categories can miscount black people who also identify as biracial, Latinx, Asian, indigenous, or by another label by grouping them into one category called other. The number of people of color in Monroe County who have tested positive for COVID-19 reflects a disproportion in the U.S. in which black, Latinx, and indigenous people are at least two to three times more likely to become infected with the disease. The Monroe County Public Library is hosting virtual story time on Tuesdays starting at 10 a.m. this month. Children's librarians will be leading a fun, short preschool story time. The program is geared towards ages 2 to 6, but all ages are welcome. You can find the virtual story times on the library's YouTube channel. And that's your local news brief. For WFHB, I'm Jake Jacobson. Monroe County Health Administrator Penny Caudell said the county is working on a new health order during a July 10th COVID-19 press conference meeting. She said the order should be finalized by the end of July. She spoke about possible order mandates. You know, masks are not in and of themselves the only prevention method. So we're looking at other things, uh, and that can include indoor seating and, and that being spaced well so that we allow for distancing when we are inside businesses. And that may be included. So while it may be recommended, uh, we're looking at having a requirement for that distancing regardless of what the capacity limit is. Uh, 
We also know that markings help people know how far to stand apart. And if we're in line, um, how do we need to space ourselves? So we're looking at whether or not it's feasible to, to require some markings as well. And how, how might we provide those to businesses or help them make that happen? Uh, social gathering size is also uh, being a looked at and evaluated do we keep it at 150 inside and or 150 outside and 100 inside does it need to be lower um, can we go higher those kinds of things caudell said the county is also considering a face covering mandate with reasonable exceptions she said enforcement actions are still under consideration she said most new cases are in young people ages 20 to 30 years old our case count today is 329 cases 3.6% 3 of all the tests that were done were positive. 25.2% uh, of our positives are in the 20 to 29-year-old age group. Emergency Management Director Allison Moore said the county continues to collect homemade face masks. She said personal protective equipment and supplies for public and private schools were received last week for students and staff. President of Indiana University Health, Brian Shockney, said before school begins, parents should normalize wearing masks for children. He said Indiana saw its second largest increase in COVID-19 cases. We've seen the second largest increase in positives uh, in the state of Indiana since April. Um, when we were in our surge. And uh, those datas were, that data was released by the Indiana State Department of Health this week. And so we have concern uh, that we need to do all the things that have already been discussed, wearing face masks, practicing good hand hygiene, social distancing, and staying at home uh, when you can. Um, so our healthcare teams are working diligently to be sure that uh, we're modeling that behavior as well in public. Caudell said any students that experience a positive COVID-19 case must notify the school. She said the schools will temporarily close areas or the building to clean any necessary areas. Caudell said testing is not a prevention measure. She said an individual acquiring routine tests could strain resources for others. Marion County joined three other counties in issuing a mandatory mask mandate. According to its latest public health order, Monroe County does not require face coverings in public places. Penny Caudill issued a public health order on July 4th, which laid out some deviations to Indiana's stage 4.5. In the list of deviations, Caudill wrote that all businesses are required to post an 8x10 sign at the main entrance by July 8th. Marion, Elkhart, LaGrange, and St. Joseph counties require masks in public settings. Cities such as Evansville and West Lafayette have declared face-covering mandates in local capacities. The Monroe County Health Department said it strongly recommends the use of facial coverings when in public places and unable to socially distance, as recommended by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. CDC says that cloth face coverings may help prevent people who have COVID-19 from spreading to others. It's also said cloth face coverings are most likely to reduce the spread of COVID-19 when they are widely used by people in public settings. Here is Mayor John Hamilton talking about the possibility of a local mask mandate in the future. This is from A Few Minutes with the Mayor from last Monday's broadcast. 
I do expect that we will have an order coming to make face coverings mandatory in our county. Uh, I've made clear that from the city, uh, particularly with students coming back and seeing what's been happening around the country, I've been an advocate for mandatory face coverings, and I'm looking forward to that order. And the Chocolate Priestess is saying that many businesses in Bloomington claim to be practicing mask wearing and social distancing, but when they go inside for even just a pickup order, that this is not true. So they're asking if there's mandate put on wearing masks in public, how will this be enforced? A mandatory order is typically enforced by private enterprises, whether it's a restaurant or a shop or any facility like that. We expect them to assure compliance with the order, and I think most of them will. And uh, I think enforcement can come to help make sure they do that, uh, and then uh, enforcement can come from various uh, governmental entities. Governor Eric Holcomb's stage 4.5 executive order is set to expire Friday, July 17th. Monroe County has yet to release any plans for how it will move forward. The Bloomington Plan Commission approved a mixed-use building development at 400 South 7th Street during their July 13th meeting. Case manager Eric Grulich said the development would be located behind the Johnson Creamery building. So the petitioner is requesting site plan approval to allow for uh, the parking lot property to be redeveloped um, with a mixed-use building um, with 60 dwelling units. Um, So here is the aerial photograph. Uh, The site area is marked in red. Uh, The Beeline Trail runs along the east side of this property. 8th Street runs along the north side of this property, and just to the south, on the south side of the Johnson Creamery, is 7th Street. Um, So there is an alley that used to run east to west through this site. Uh, That was vacated some time ago. Um, So the petitioner owns uh, all of this property area and would like to redevelop the parking lot with a new mixed-use building. Grulich said the bottom floor would include commercial and retail space off of the Beeline Trail. He said the development would include 58 dwelling units and a partial green roof with seating area. He said the petitioner is proposing a five-story development under the new sections of the Unified Development Ordinance. Um, So the first new section of the code that they are looking to utilize uh, deals with the sustainable development incentives. And the sustainable development incentives allow for an additional story, um, but not to exceed 12 feet if a petition demonstrates compliance with at least four of six possible criteria that are listed in the UDO. Um, So this petition has utilized four of those elements. Um, Those include the light-colored hardscaping, um, covered parking, cooler vegetated roof, and solar energy. Grulich said along with the green roof, developers will include a white roof and solar panels. He said the second UDO section was in parking. Um, So there are several sections uh, in this um, reduction of parking area that offers some opportunities for reduced parking on the site, and the petitioner is requesting to utilize two of those provisions. So one of those provisions allows for a reduction, a 15% reduction, uh, if there's a fixed transit station within a quarter mile. Um, So at the southeast of this site, uh, at 7th and Morton, there is a Bloomington Transit uh, Station. Um, So they would be allowed a a 15% reduction, which would allow for eight spaces to be removed from their parking number, uh, from the required on-site parking number. Uh, The other element that they're requesting to utilize from the new zoning code uh, deals with a parking study. Um, So the petitioners have submitted the parking study. Um, So the parking study 
utilizes or looks at um, possible ways for a project to uh, reduce their parking requirement, um, as well as to offer reasons why the required number of parking spaces um, is not necessary for this site. Um, so some of the things that they mentioned in that parking study uh, is the availability for sharing of uh, vehicles for the high number of parkings or for the high number of bedrooms. Um, so this project will have uh, several units that are three bedroom, um, four bedroom, five bedroom. Um, so those higher bedroom count units uh, reduce the need for everybody in there to have a parking, uh, parking space or a car. Um, in addition, one and two bedroom units, um, oftentimes not everybody there will have a car. Um, but another very important element to this uh, petition site is the uh, construction that is occurring right now for the new public parking garage immediately to the north of this. Grulich said the Historical Preservation Commission did not hear this development petition. He said according to the UDO, developments behind historical structures do not have a required setback. Petitioner Dustin said the development would be 10 feet from the Johnson smokestack. Commissioner Brad Whistler asked Petitioner Dustin about adequate space for maintenance to the smokestack. But I think from a, uh, an access and uh, an access standpoint, um, there will remain a, uh, a good amount of space to get to that. And that's why we've uh, stayed off of that, um, uh, even on the, on the north and the west uh, side of it right there. Obviously, to the east and the south, that can come to become um, a little bit more uh, unencumbered. Um, so that becomes the primary uh, access to that. Um, you know, obviously, there is um, there has been a bit of work done to this uh, over the years, and so um, you know, that becomes something that we have uh, uh, will be paying special attention to, um, not only for the future but also during construction of the building to make sure that. Um, you know, that we're kind of being clear of that and not undermining um, the structure of that. Petitioner Michael Corrado said they are considering a car share contract for the development. Commissioners unanimously approved the development. Of all the numerous questions that Indiana University will face for the upcoming 2020-21 school year, one that many students will be asking is the question of where to get food on campus. We turn to WFHB correspondent Katrine Bruner for more on the topic. With many restrictions on dining in around town for health concerns with COVID-19, staff and faculty at IU are making other plans for giving students the same opportunities of dining close while staying safe. IU has stated that dine-in eating will be prohibited in residential dining halls and campus eateries. Governor Eric Holcomb's executive order regarding reopening in Indiana for Stage 4 stated, quote, Schools and other entities that typically provide food services to the public may continue to do so under this executive order that the food is provided to students where members of the public are on a pickup and takeaway basis only. Schools and other entities that provide food services under this exemption shall not permit the food to be eaten at the site where it is provided or at any other gathering site due to the virus's propensity to physical impact services and personal property." End quote. Keep in mind, this statement is separate from the restrictions put on individual restaurants in Indiana and is specifically for IU's food service for their own students. 
According to a news update posted on the college's website, students will only be allowed to order food from dining halls and the campus eateries throughout carryout, not dine-in. Maps have been updated on carryout services such as Grubhub that will now show employees how to go into the dining spaces safely. Campus will provide outdoor seating for students as well. Furthermore, IU is in the process of creating virtual dining spaces for students to still connect with each other. Online menus will be streamed for easy access as well. Grubhub has been stated to be the preferred and encouraged method of ordering food for students, especially if they would like it delivered. Director of Auxiliary Business Services Marketing, Pam Sprong, explained that students will not be charged extra via fee if they pick up their food using Grubhub. However, they will if they get it delivered. Cash will not be an option for paying. Methods to pay will be through contactless card readers, iBucks, Crimson Card, and credit cards. Executive Director of IU Dining, Rahul Shravastov, has stated, quote, The dining team is working hard to provide fun, delicious, and nutritious meals while making safety the number one priority. We are looking forward to our students returning to campus and serving them the best food possible for them to be successful Hoosiers, end quote. Additional important information for students to know when the year begins will be face masks. Face coverings will be required for students to wear when inside campus eateries and dining halls to order or pick up food. There will also be safety ambassadors stationed in dining halls and campus eateries to make sure students are distanced safely and following the IU COVID-19 safety protocols. More extensive information was posted to IU's informational webpage for students in the upcoming school year. For WFHB, I'm Katrine Bruner. The mural in People's Park was overlaid with the words Black Lives Matter. Sydney Foreman and Cade Young take a look at the history of People's Park in today's feature report. This feature was originally aired last Friday in our July 10th broadcast. We turn to Sydney Foreman and Cade Young for more. The mural in People's Park was anonymously overlaid with the words Black Lives Matter on Friday, June 19, 2020. The City of Bloomington Arts Commission met on July 8 during a public meeting to decide whether or not it will keep the Black Lives Matter lettering. Defund BPD was spray-painted in the upper right corner of the mural, but the message has since been painted over. The Bloomington Police Department said this is an act of vandalism and they are investigating the matter. However, Bloomington Councilman Jim Sims said no opposition has been raised from the community, the artist, or the property owners. So the first thing is that if the owner were to file a complaint, then that now turns into basically a criminal matter. So that's normally what happens when we have a graffiti artist that does something on buildings or across another artwork, um, then it's considered a criminal activity. In this particular case, um, which I was very, very happy to hear and I happen to agree with it, is that the owners, along with the artists, didn't have an issue with Black Lives Matter being painted across it. Um, and I will add this, that when I've looked at it, it's not like um, regular graffiti we see around the city that's, you know, uh, it, it's graffiti, but it's kind of haphazard and it kind of marks over stuff. This, on the other hand, I thought was painted rather nicely and it almost blends into the mural that's already there. I think if you were to walk and see it today and you didn't know that Black Lives Matter wasn't a part of that um, a month and a half ago or whenever, then you wouldn't know any difference. 
Meanwhile, the city said it planned to commission a new mural later this summer. Designs for the new mural are yet to be announced. During the Public Arts Commission meeting, Assistant Director of the Arts Sean Starowitz said there are no plans for covering the lettering so close to the commission of a new mural. Art Commission member Nick Blanford mentioned that the mural, especially at its current location, can have more purpose than just aesthetic imagery. The balance that we want to strike is, um, you know, uh, having having a, a piece of artwork that is appropriate to the site, you know, that isn't isn't just sort of like overly, overly commercial, overly disposable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, it doesn't need to be uh, a Visit Bloomington advertisement, you know, um, at, mm-hmm. at, at all times. And I think that, um, you know, I think the balance to strike is, you know, art can challenge people. Um, it can, um, it can make people uncomfortable, but, you know, should we stop short of making, you know, of, of it, you know, yeah, we want to avoid something that is full on incendiary, um, and going to, you know, specifically and, you know, entice a lot of volatile reactions. You know, I think, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to find that balance and that balance, you know, the property owners are going to be part of that conversation. In December of 1968, the current People's Park site was the scene of a hate crime. Only a few months earlier, in fall of 1968, the site opened as a local business called the Black Market, which sold books, clothing, records, artwork, and other crafts made by black artists. The shop was owned by a man named Clarence Rollo Turner. According to Indiana University Archives, Turner was an IU graduate student and wanted to create a gathering space and cultural center uniquely for people of color. He was the co-founder of the Afro-Afro-American Students Association, or the AAASA. Jim Sims, city councilman and previous president of the Monroe County chapter of the NAACP, is working with multiple local groups to designate the area with an Indiana historical marker. Sim spoke about what the black market brought to the city of Bloomington. But it was like an off-campus facility, I think, or market or building that was frequented by African-American students. And of course it became the black market, which, you know, sold music is my understanding, um, hair products, um, you know, the sort of thing that years and years ago, uh, black people couldn't so much get at uh, regular retail stores out in the city in many cases. But yeah, hang out, um, uh, political people, you know, a a comfortable place where you could speak with others, you know, like yourselves and shared some of the same life experiences and, and, and dealing with some of the same societal issues. That same year, local chapters of the Ku Klux Klan were growing. In the spring of 68, the KKK tried to establish a chapter in Monroe County, Indiana, and the opening of the store stirred controversy in the community. Turner reported receiving threatening calls, and soon later, Turner's business was firebombed on December 26, 1968, by members of the Ku Klux Klan. According to Indiana University archives, eyewitnesses reported seeing a white male throw a burning container through the window and driving away. These men were local Klansmen Carlisle Briscoe Jr., and Jackie Kinzer. The black market was the only targeted downtown business. According to a Herald Times story in 2013, 
Carlisle Briscoe Jr. was convicted in 1986 for firebombing the black market. He was the son of a local police officer and was notorious for setting fires around town and even known to throw rocks into HT crime reporters' homes. The article recorded Briscoe saying, quote, he could not find anyone competent to represent him as he wanted, end quote, so he represented himself. Briscoe spent two and a half years at the Indiana State Prison. However, his conviction was overturned and he was released in October of 1979. Briscoe then moved to Nebraska, where he was again arrested in 2012 for possession of a firearm by a prohibited person. Upon arrest, found in his home were several weapons, a large amount of ammunition, a bulletproof vest, Nazi propaganda, and memorabilia. While in prison at the Nebraska State Penitentiary, at age 71, Briscoe died one year into his three-year sentence. Back in 1968, two weeks after the firebombing of the black market, there was a student-led demonstration of at least 200 people outside the burnt remains of the black market. According to State Archives, Rollo Turner said, quote, The only reason this store was bombed was because it was a black store. End quote. According to State Archives, in February of 1970, members of the Youth International Party, nicknamed Yippies, came up with the idea to create a People's Park on the vacant lot where the black market was firebombed. People's Parks were starting to sprout at the time, modeling after People's Park in Berkeley, California. These parks were normally not sanctioned by government or legal authority. Instead, activists gathered in the common place to, quote, promote free speech, activism, and community involvement, end quote. Local yippies started on the project by the spring of 1970. State archives said the park was intended to be a gathering space, community garden, and a place for everyone to, quote, sing, dance, rap, and generally do his own thing, end quote. There were some complications with bypassing city authority to put up the park. State archives said the city of Bloomington threatened to shut it down due to public health concerns. The property owner, Larry Canada, reportedly had plans for the property. However, he deeded the land to the city in 1976. Since then, the Bloomington People's Park has been the site of protest, music festivals, and flea markets. Today, the park lives on, with a mural entitled You Belong Here, designed by local artist Eva Roffling Allen, on the side of what is now Bicycle Garage, Inc. However, in the midst of current events, recharging the civil rights movement, the words Black Lives Matter were painted over the mural. But being on the Bicycle Garage's wall, Starwitz said the future mural is ultimately up to them. The wall is owned by Bicycle Garage. We don't own the wall. We, we have provided mural opportunities, but it's ultimately Bicycle Garage's say on what goes in terms of if the partnership will be continued, uh, if there's another mural, it's ultimately their wall, their property, right, that faces the park. Um, that is one potential scary thing about us being involved in public-private partnerships always, which is the property owner can, we can go through this process, commission work, um, but that's why we have shifted to doing the open call process. So we can say, we're selecting these two artists, we're going to pay them to refine their ideas. Then we can also include the property owner in that conversation so that we don't get down one track and then have to, um, and we, we're, we're not in the business of censorship. You know, we're always going to represent the artists. Um, and that's what I try to do as a staffer is represent the artist's intentions with these public private partnerships. 
Starowitz mentioned there have been concerns of making a statement with a mural celebrating black culture, but not working towards reforming equity issues. He said the Arts Commission is actively working to create a more inclusive and diverse environment for artists. Councilman Jim Sims said the painted edition complements the historical importance of the area. I, I think it is from a, a current societal issues that we're dealing with now, I think it's rather appropriate. Um, but the significance that it conveys, and particularly how it sits there with the historical black market, um, with future plans of a historical marker commemorating that event, um, things feel right, if that makes sense. In that particular case and in that scenario, I think it brings community awareness. I think there's people who may ask some of the significance and thus become educated on, um, you know, some of the plight of, of black students back in 68, you know, how they had to deal with some of the racism and uh, other race issues. And I would be fine if there was any way that the mural could stay up there along with the Black Lives Matter edition. Um, and pretty soon it'd be just part of the fabric of downtown and the People's Park area. In the meantime, the Bloomington City Arts Commission will work with the property owners and the community to commission an appropriate mural for People's Park. Starowitz mentioned mural themes have been suggested by the community to commemorate the history of Bloomington's people of color. To consider would be History of People's Park, the Black Market, with a link to that various website. Civil Rights History in Bloomington, celebrating individuals like George and Vitaly Farrow, the Second Street Baptist Church and its architect Samuel Plateau, uh, Neil Marshall Black Cultural Center, Indigenous History and Continued Existence and Representation in the Region, Black, Indigenous, and People of Color Joy. Like, that's just, that's not finalized language by any means, but those are kind of some of the frameworks that could be included um, just in the conversations that I've been having with community members and other artists and art communities around this kind of process. According to their current contract for the existing You Belong Here mural, the Bloomington Arts Commission could begin repainting the mural on August 31, 2020. Starowitz said the new mural contract could last anywhere from a three to five year period. Support for WFHB comes from Cardinal Spirits Distillery, located on the Beeline. Cardinal Spirits has opened a new kitchen featuring local seasonal food made from scratch to complement their craft cocktails. Dinner is available Tuesday through Saturday at Cardinal Spirits, 922 South Morton Street. The WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812 334 4003 and on the web at mbisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Aaron Comforty, Katrine Bruner, Cade Young, and Sydney Foreman in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our feature was produced by Sydney Foreman and Cade Young. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. Our executive producer is Cade Young. For WFHB, I'm Sydney Foreman. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent local news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast, as well as all other WFHB news programming online at wfhb.org. 
You too can be a part of our award-winning news team. For more information about joining our volunteer team of citizen journalists, email news at wfhb.org. Stay tuned for Cool Solutions, coming up next on WFHB Community Radio.